Well, this morning I want to talk about a few things. I want to talk about a plastic uh, honey bear. I want to talk about memorizing rap lyrics, dusty feet, and why some people who follow other people into a bathroom is a good thing. Okay, That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if someone were to ask you the question, what is discipleship, what would you say? Or hear the word disciple, what is a disciple, what would you say? Well, if you uh, recognize me and you know a pattern of how I like to teach is I like to give some background information. So let me give some background information. And if you're new uh, in terms of being here or uh, this is your first time hearing me teach, uh, you're going to say, why is he telling me all this stuff? And then eventually, hopefully, we'll be able to connect some dots. But the goal is that there's going to be some lights lighting up on your dashboard that you'll go, oh, later on, all right? But there is going to be some interaction. So when I say, let me hear you say, I want to hear you respond back, okay? Later when I say, how does this interact, how does this make you feel? I want you to respond, okay? So this is going to be very interactive. I'm going to make it very hard for you to fall asleep and stay asleep here this morning, okay? Um, so I, let me just say, for this background information that I want to give you, I'm deeply indebted to a gentleman by the name of Ray Vanderlaan, who has studied and lived in Israel and given a lot of this background information and uh, has helped me uh, tremendously with this. So next slide. Uh, I want to uh, show you a couple pictures here. Uh, you've seen uh, me show you some of these pictures before, but this is the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Uh, the cool thing is my dad was actually here two days ago. <laughs> uh, he was helping lead a trip uh, to, to Israel. So you look out on the beautiful Sea of Galilee, again, about 10 miles north to south, uh, six miles east to west in its widest point. Next slide. So he, this is up on what's called the Arbel Cliffs. You can, you can hike them today, and uh, you, this is looking down on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. That little, what's in that circle right there is a little town called Capernaum. This is Jesus' uh, uh, adult uh, hometown uh, that we see here. And this is just a little tiny town. You see, it's not very big, right on the coast, so it's a fishing port. It's a fishing town, actually more a village than anything else. And so the side where I'm taking this picture here from the Arbel Cliffs uh, is on the western side. And we talked about this. The western side is very Jewish. And the eastern side, which you can see kind of in the upper right there, kind of the brown section on the other side of the lake, is very Greek. So there's a big difference. Very Jewish on one side, very educated. And this, where I'm standing, and Capernaum and a little bit north and south of that circle is where discipleship began. And again, there's a difference between Eastern thought, the Greek side, and Western thought on the Jewish side. The Western side was much more uh, abstract and, and, and uh, sorry, on the Eastern side, it was much more abstract and theological and theoretical. That's how the Greeks used to think. But on the Western side, the Jewish side, it was much more about pictures. It was much more about experiences. Let me give you an example. So if you were, and, and we, we inherit sort of Western thinking, don't we? Greek thinking. So if I were to say, finish the sentence, God is, you might say, God is love. God is great. God is holy. God is patient. But if you were to ask people in an Eastern mindset, finish the sentence, God is, they'd say, God is rock. God is eagle. God is mother hen. Which, by the way, those are all accurate biblical images. <laughs> That's the way God described himself to his people. So there's a difference in how we think about that. 
in Western thought, you'd ask a question, you'd get an answer. What is 2 plus 2? You'd say 4, period. In Eastern thinking, you'd say, what is 2 plus 2? They'd respond with another question. What is 16 divided by 4? So you're answering with another question, but the question itself is the answer, right? And so you, we've got to understand some of this background information if we're to understand how discipleship works. How many times in, in Scripture does Jesus have a question that's asked of him, and then he turns around and asks another question? This is the way he was raised. He's not trying to confuse people. He's actually just responding with an answer. We just don't see it because we're wired as Western thinkers. He's given us an answer if we're willing to dig around and actually see that that is an answer. So when it comes to how children were raised, I want us to look at the educational uh, process here. Education was extremely important in the first century, especially around the Sea of Galilee. And to Jews, Torah, that is Scripture, the Old Testament, was very sacred. They viewed it as a gift from God, a love letter which they were to cherish. Every town, every village had a synagogue. You had just a handful of Jewish families come together. Then you would build together a synagogue. didn't have to be big, but you would build some sort of synagogue. And it was the center of Jewish life. The synagogue was also the place, not just on the weekends for religious services, it was also a place of schooling. The local town would hire a teacher of the law, a rabbi, to be the teacher of the next generation of Jews who would grow up to love God. And part of that was to teach them how to read and write and do things like that, not just be there during religious services. And the hotbed of this Jewish educational system was in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Now, this idea of a teacher or rabbi simply means the great one or the master or the master teacher. And you became a rabbi around the age of 30. Which, by the way, a little side note, how old was Jesus when he became a rabbi? 30. <laughs> now, who else in the Gospels had disciples? Can you all think of anybody? Who else was a rabbi that had disciples? John the Baptist. That's exactly right. In fact, John had his own disciples be convinced that there was a rabbi better than him, and he told his own disciples, stop following me and go follow him. That's amazing. And every disciple would have what was called a yoke. Not a yoke like an egg yoke, but a yoke, Y-O-K-E. Let me show you. When you think of yoke, uh, it means interpretation. Next slide. Oh, okay, sorry. Go back. My apologies. Each one would have a slightly different translation or interpretation of the Scriptures. So a yoke was your interpretation. And each one had a slightly different interpretation than the one before. This was called your yoke. And it was derived from oxen uh, that would put a yoke on their shoulders. And normally when you would yoke two oxen together, what you would do is you would have one older ox that was stronger, and then you'd have a younger uh, green ox, and that older one would work together to be able to plow a field, teaching the other one how that you would do it. So that idea of yoke, their interpretation. Now, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see a certain rabbi, Yeshua ben Yosef of Nazareth, 
Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth, give us his yoke many times, right? What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount multiple times? You have heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said by other rabbis, but as a rabbi, I tell you it's this. Jesus is giving us his yoke, his interpretation. By the way, my rabbi also said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. He's he's saying my interpretation of how you follow the rules and the, the rule and the reign of God is actually not a burden that's heavy and oppressive. I, as your ox, invite you to join me, he says. Now, now every rabbi would have something called, it's a really funny word, I'm going to have you try to pronounce it. It's called shmicha, right? you got a hakalugi there at the end, okay? i got to wipe the mic off here when I'm done. All right, so let me hear you say shmicha. Right, you got to punch at the end, right? Shmicha. Shmicha, and it means authority, authority. Another way to describe authority would be ordination, ordination. And so the way that a rabbi received authority, or shmicha, was when two other rabbis actually affirmed that you were good enough to be a rabbi. You couldn't just raise your hand and go, I'm a rabbi now, and people go, okay, that's cool. You can't print off, print off ordination papers online, and they become legit. Like, you got to have two other legitimate rabbis say, yes, you are a rabbi, you are worthy, and then you would have shmicha, you'd have authority or ordination. Now, Jesus, when did he start his earthly ministry? How old was he? He was 30. The Pharisees asked him this question, by what shmicha do you have? In other words, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are saying, Who gave you authority to do what you're doing? Who are your two? That's what they're asking. You can't just say you're, who are your two? So let me ask you, who are the two that gave Jesus his shmicha? Okay, yep. How about the first one? John the Baptist, right? You follow him, don't follow me. Rabbi number one. And as James just said, God himself. Think about his baptism. A voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus is the only rabbi in history to get his shmicha directly from God. So where did you get your shmicha? Is what they ask. Who are the two? Now, Take that idea of rabbi, and we're going to jump over here to the idea of schooling. Okay, you've been wondering, why does he have a little honey bear on the front of his table? Good question. In these center rows, if you're sitting near or in these rows, underneath is uh, actually a honey bear for you. So I'd like for you to take the honey bear, and uh, I'd like you to open it up, squeeze it out, and I'd like you to actually put a little bit of it on your finger, okay? Now, it's, it might get a little sticky, so be careful. Don't squeeze it all over your partner's hands, okay? Just be really careful. Um, you can take as much as you want. Just, just don't make a mess on that. But I want you to just take that and keep that on your finger there. Make sure everybody gets one. I, I, everybody, make sure you have some on your finger, okay? Now, when it comes to schooling, there were three levels of schooling. The first one was called Beit Sefer, all right? Let me hear you say Beit Sefer. 
Beit Sefer means simply the house of the book. Beit just means house, Sefer meaning the book, all right? So Beit Sefer, the house of the book. This was elementary school. When you were little, Jewish boys and girls, starting about ages 5 to 6, until they were about 11 to 12 years old, would go to Beit Sefer. The rabbi would teach during the day, and here's what you would do. You would come in, and you would, you know, there were no smart boards or textbooks or anything like that, but you would have a slate. You'd have a tablet, and you'd have a piece of chalk, and that's where you would learn to write Hebrew letters on that. Now, on the first day of school, when you're five years old, imagine yourself as a little girl or a little boy at five years of age. You come in, and on your tablet that you get, the rabbi would walk around, and he would have honey. Now, these things are very inexpensive today. But at the time, honey in the first century was incredibly expensive. Most five- and six-year-olds would have never tasted honey because it would simply be too expensive, and parents wouldn't want to waste that on little children, at least at that age. And so the rabbi would walk around with honey, and he would say, students, hold out your tablets. And he would go around, and he would put a little dollop of honey on each of their tablets. And he would say, now students, eat. And they would eat the honey. And it would have been the sweetest thing that they had ever tasted in their entire life at that point. And then the rabbi would look at them, and he would say, may you learn the words of Scripture, and they, may they taste so sweet in your mouth, may it be like honey on the comb. Maybe when the psalmist write, writes in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, maybe he had honey in his mind. What would that do for you if you were a five or six-year-old and this was your first day of school and the first time you were ever exposed to God's word in your life? And you just tasted the most amazing taste your mouth has ever experienced. And your rabbi told you, may you experience the words of God just like what you tasted. What would that do to you? Would that not move you to think about Scripture in a very unique way? And because of this, in Beit Sefer, right, ages 5 to about 11 or 12, large portions of Scripture were memorized by these little kids. Likely, they had memorized the entire Torah by the end of this level of schooling being finished. Let that sink in. Torah, the Old Testament. Not the books of the Old Testament, but by 11 or 12 years old, they would have memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament. And you guys go, oh, it's different today. Oh, it's so different today. Really? Ever talk to a young kid about the lyrics of Lil Wayne or a Kanye West song? <laughs> or a Kanye West album? Is it different? See, at this point, most students and all the girls stayed at home to help with the family in the case of boys... And the case of the boys would learn the family trade. By the way, yeah, so when, so when girls around the age of 11 or 12 would have their first period, this sounds really weird in our culture, but they would be married off at that point. 
oftentimes the older men. Now, for us, that sounds like Me Too written all over it, right? I mean, that's terrible. And yet that was very normal, right? Life expectancy was much lower. When girls were prepared to have children, that would be very normal. That would be very normal for that to occur. And so girls would, around that age, would their parents would find them a wonderful Jewish man to marry. By the way, Mary is said to have been about 12 years old, 12 or 13, scholars believe, when she found out she was pregnant with Jesus. There's a passage, the beginning of the Gospels, called, that is often called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. If you go through and look at the Song of Mary in detail, you'll notice that almost every line of the Song of Mary is referencing some Old Testament phrase, idea, or passage. How did she know that? Because at her age, at the age of 12, she had probably just gotten done finishing, memorizing large portions or all of the Old Testament. So once you graduated from Beit Sefer Elementary School, 11, 12 years old, you would graduate, especially the, boy, the boys would graduate, the girls would, would go on to, uh, to bear children. It would be this second level of schooling called Beit Midrash. Let me hear you say, Beit Midrash. The house of interpretation. The best students continue in their study. And some, would, again, would learn the trade. But this, these were the elites. Those were really smart. About 11 or 12 years old until about 15 or 16 years of age. Memorization continued to be important because most people did not have their own copy of Scripture. Either they knew it by heart or they would go to the synagogue where there would be one village scroll. It was so hard to write everything by hand. You would have one large scroll, and that was the only book that you had, uh, a, a copy of the Scriptures. Constant repetition was considered to be an essential element of learning. And then after this would be the third stage, Beit Talmud. Let me hear you say Beit Talmud. And that's the house of study. This would be the best of the best of the best of the best would continue. This would be the Harvard or the Princeton or the Yale of rabbinical training. At the age of 15 or 16, it was believed that you were ready to follow a rabbi and that you would listen to some rabbis that you respected. You'd pop in the back. You'd listen to them give a teaching, and you would decide after a while, which rabbi will I eventually approach? I'm going to continue to watch their lives. And then once you narrowed in on exactly the rabbi you would want to study under, with fear and trepidation, you would approach that rabbi and you would say, Rabbi, may I follow you? And he would ask you a series of questions to see about your knowledge and your love of the Scripture. So he would say something like this. Student, recite the book of Deuteronomy backwards. (laughs) Student, List every passage that mentions the word bread and give me the verse that precedes it. And they would do it. But if you did not pass, as many did not, most did not, the rabbi would say to you, student, it is apparent that you love God. But instead, go home and love God by serving in the family trade, in stonemasonry, or trading, or selling goods in the market. I bless you, and may you love God as you you live that out. But if 
you were able to answer the rabbi's questions. And the rabbi felt that your answers were sufficient. He would say what every Jewish boy dreams of hearing from a rabbi. He would look at you and he would say, Lecha harai. Lecha harai. Which simply means, walk after me. We might say, come follow me. When the rabbi would say, Lecha harai, it was as if he would say, I believe that you have what it takes to be like me and to continue on my tradition with future followers after you. And if you were asked to be a follower, you would be called a Talmud, which simply means disciple. The plural Talmudim in Hebrew is disciples. As a Talmud, you were passionately devoted to your rabbi and noted everything that he said and did. And when you became a Talmud, you were a teenager. The rabbi-Talmud relationship was very intense and intimate and a personal system of education. The Jewish people had a collection of rabbinic thought around 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D. called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah still forms the core identity of Jewish belief today. And in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yose ben Yezer, one of the earliest members of the rabbinic movement, lived about two centuries before Jesus, and he said this. He said, if you are to follow your rabbi, he said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you walk so closely to your rabbi that the dust that is kicked up from his sandals would cover you. He said, live that way. You wanted to do whatever your rabbi did. You didn't just learn in a classroom. In fact, most of your learning wasn't in a classroom. It was out in the world. You learned with your feet. You'd follow them on the road. You'd follow them everywhere. You would see what they would do and see how they would pray. And you would see how they interact with others. And yes, you'd even follow your rabbi into the bathroom. And that may seem silly or funny or slightly awkward, but what would happen if you didn't follow your rabbi into the bathroom and hear the blessing that every rabbi says when they're done using the restroom? And it goes like this. Thank you, God, Lord of the universe, for creating holes in my body that work. That may sound like, really? Are you kidding me? Let me ask you a personal question. When one of the holes in your body doesn't work, is that a problem? It is. And there are medical specialists who go to school to study to make sure the holes in your bodies work. So if you didn't follow your rabbi into the bathroom, you would have missed the blessing of him honestly thanking God. Thank you, God, that the holes in my body work. How could you be like your rabbi if you didn't hear that? You'd shuffle in, and then you'd shuffle out, following your rabbi. That's why, do you remember when Peter is following Jesus? And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets up early, and he starts worshiping and praying before sunrise. And Peter finds him. He says, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. Peter's actually embarrassed. Do you know why? He wasn't following his rabbi. He didn't know where he went. That's shame on him as a Talmud. How can you lose track of your rabbi if you're trying to be like him? By the way, remember, um, sorry, so, so by following your rabbi around, the goal was that one day 
you would move from being a Talmud to being a rabbi and then having your own Talmudim who would learn to follow you. All right, that's a lot of background. <laughs> but the goal is that I'm going to read a few verses, and I really believe some lights on your dashboard are going to start to light up, okay? So I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And I'm going to read this, and I'd like for us to stand, actually. Can we stand while I read this? Because I, I really want you to hear this. I really want you to make some of the connections of the background that I've just given you, okay? says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You can be seated. Are the lights on your dashboard lighting up? I hope so. Let's look at verse 18 right there. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Why were they fishermen? They didn't make the cut. They weren't good enough for any rabbi to have confidence in them. How old do you think they were? Many people think they were late teenage years, which would make sense if they didn't make the cut. In verse 19, Jesus has this phrase here, come follow me. You know what Jesus, the rabbi, says to them? Lecha harai. He says, I believe that you, too, have what it takes to be like me. So what is the profound implication in this passage? Jesus called the JV team to follow him. I've taught this many times and I still get chills saying that. He believes that the JV team members have what it takes to be like him. A bunch of teenagers younger than most of us in this room. Verse 22, it says, towards the end, sort of the second set of brothers. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And I've always read this and thought, that's kind of weird, right? Like Zebedee's like, hey, hey, boys, where, where are you going? 
You, you come back here. You listen to your dad. Come back here. We got stuff to do. Not at all. What would Zebedee be doing? There's a rabbi that thinks my sons have what it takes to be like them. Go. Go and don't come back. I'll figure it out. Yes. I hope that moves you. That moves me. Rabbis didn't pursue Talmudim. The Talmudim asked the rabbi for permission to follow him. And that is all except for two rabbis in history. Rabbi Hillel was the first rabbi ever to go proactively approach other potential Talmudim and say, come follow me. And the other one was Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus of Nazareth. So in John, when Jesus, in the book of John, when Jesus says, you did not choose me, no, I choose you, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is a Calvinist, of course. No, no. It means that Jesus was saying, Lechahrai. Jesus was one of two rabbis who handpicked his own disciples to be obsessed with the thought and the passion that you wanted to be like your rabbi is the heart of discipleship. Why is it that Peter wept when he denied Jesus three times? It's because he had failed to live up to not only his rabbi, but his rabbi believed in him so much, and he didn't believe in his rabbi. And it crushed him. Nothing would wrench Peter's heart more than knowing that he wasn't like his rabbi. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Dave. And I'll call him Dave because his name actually is Dave. <laughs> Dave's a friend of mine. Dave heard this teaching. Dave works as an engineer of a manufacturing plant. His dad's business. He's a normal guy. Dave was so gripped by this that God actually believed in him this much. He had been a church-going guy for years, and his family went, just that's good you're supposed to do. But he was so gripped by this that God would actually look through his son Jesus at someone like Dave and say, I want you to follow me, that it changed his life. And Dave said, before coming to your church, J.R., he said, I just thought I could just be a Christian, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. Go to church and read my Bible sometimes and pray and check the box on my IRS form and the census that I'm a Christian. He said, but it never hit me that I had never been a disciple of Jesus. And you know, at the beginning I asked that if someone were to ask you, what is discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? How would you answer that? Here's how I would answer this. It is the irreplaceable and lifelong journey of becoming like Jesus by embodying his message. That's the invitation and the task and the mission for every one of us. Consistently embodying the life and spirituality and mission of our founder, and of Jesus the rabbi who looks at us and says, Lecha harai.
disciple is an apprentice, not someone that just sits with pencil in hand in a classroom with a whiteboard, but is an apprentice of learning experientially how to be like their master teacher, to be an apprentice in kingdom living, the kingdom of God, to cooperatively interact with God throughout our everyday lives and to have our character transformed so that we become like Jesus. Dave Balecki wanted to be like his master teacher. Once he realized how much the master teacher believed in him and cared for him and thought he had what it take to take on Jesus' yoke and be like him. And Dave has. And Dave began to then disciple other people to make sure they understood what Jesus was was calling them to do. And Dave no longer felt insecure that he was a JV team member. He embraced it and he loved it. And he began to invite other JV team members to join in, to join Jesus as well. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? Someone who's marked my life greatly, who passed away a few years ago, his name is Dallas Willard. You've heard me quote him before. He said this, we are all being discipled, every one of us. But ultimately the question is, who is discipling you? So what is it that's discipling you? Who is discipling you? And then Dallas Willard also said this. He said, the assumption today is that we can be Christians forever, but never become disciples. There's never a differentiation in our Bibles between the two. When Jesus says to you, Lecha harai, come follow me, do you know what he's saying to us? He says, I believe that you have what it takes to be like me on the journey. I want to pause here for just a second, and I want to allow you a chance to respond, to just say it out loud. When you hear that, that the master teacher believes you have what it takes, even though many of us feel like we're JVT members, he believes in you. What does that make you feel? Feel free to say it out loud. Some of you have been really struck with emotion. I've seen it. I've heard it the last few minutes. What does this do? How does that make you feel? This is where you can talk out loud. It's okay. Terrified. Hmm. Who else? Empowered? Humbled? What's hopeful? Yeah. Who else? Proud. This is the kind of love that Jesus has for you. This is the kind of confidence that Jesus has in you. That you can be like him. You don't have to be Harvard, Yale, and Princeton educated. You don't have to have all your stuff together. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible. You just got to want it. You just got to want to be like your rabbi who believes in you. Do you believe in him? That's what he's asking of every one of us. 
And this thought always hits me that you and I are sitting here today because they were a bunch of teenagers 2,000 years ago that actually believed that they could be like their rabbi. And you and I are impacted because of a bunch of teenage JV cuts. I hope that stirs you and moves you to be like your rabbi. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money, so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. (laughs) No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree. The truth is that some of us, if we're really willing to be honest in this room, have been Christians for years, and you're doing a great job at it, at least externally. But maybe you've never come to that point of actually saying, I want to be a disciple. Dave said that was his story before coming to our church. What if, from here on out, you began to say, it's time for me to stop just being a Christian, and it's time for me to be a disciple of our rabbi. So here's what I, as I close, here's just what I want to encourage you to do. I know that Alex and Josh and some of the other leaders here at the church really long to see people grow in their journey with Jesus. And that can be really intimidating for us. You say, I haven't been to seminary. I I haven't read my Bible that much. I don't really know. I'm not very educated. I don't have much experience in that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Whatever things we might say. And I hope you're hearing this morning. That is not a requirement. So I just want to encourage you, if there's been something that has moved you, that you've said, wow, my rabbi believes in me that much, I want to put the yoke on and learn with this older, stronger ox how to do this thing called discipleship. I want to encourage you, before you walk out today, to just mention that to Alex or Josh or another leader here. It'd be easy to just get in the car and go, oh, that was great, but yeah, it's not that big a deal. I want to just encourage you to say, hey, I... I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what this means. I just want to take it seriously. That's all I want to say to you, Alex. I just want to take it seriously. Will you help me do that in the days and the weeks ahead? That's my challenge to you. And my challenge to you is this also. May you learn to discover discipleship for the first time again. (laughs) And may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. As we close, I just want to, I'm going to end with a benediction. So can you all stand for the benediction right now? One of the, and I may mention this last time I was here. Uh, I'm going to raise my hands for the benediction. And uh, again, the reason we do this is be in churches uh, is because rabbis would put their hand on someone's head as a form of blessing, right? I bless you, and he would touch them, right? So when it says the little children came forward to Jesus, he said, and he touched them, Again, in our culture today, that sounds really weird. But what it's implying is, as a rabbi, he actually touched them on the head. Because when you touch little kids on the head, you say, I bless you, and I bless you, and I bless you. Which, by the way, you wouldn't do that, because kids weren't that important or very valuable in the first century. You'd bless adults, you wouldn't bless kids. 
but he valued even little kids. So a rabbi, when he would stand before a group of people in the synagogue, can't possibly go around and just touch everybody's heads. So he would hold his hands up in the air like this. As if to say, I touch you and I bless you and I touch your head and I bless you as well and I bless you. So I'm going to raise my hands in just a second. And as I do, I just invite you to receive the benediction. Some people want to hold their hands out in front of them or close their eyes or you can just look at me uh, to receive that. But I want to send you out with a blessing, which is also a challenge as we go. And I want you to hear this before I say the benediction. This is not a challenge for you to go home and try harder. It's not. Because grace frees us from having to earn. I should do this. I should do that. That's a lot of shooting all over ourselves. We've been freed from that. It's I get to because there's someone who not only loves me and paid the price for me, but he believes in me that I can be like him. That's the joy of the good news of grace. So would you look at me and would you receive the benediction as we go? Brothers and sisters of Generation Church, go. And as you go, may you know that there's a rabbi out there who's not waiting for you to ask him He's asking you and saying, Lecha harai, come follow me. Because he believes that you have what it takes to be like him. Not next year, not when you graduate, but right now. And may you go and feel loved and affirmed and valued in that enough to like those early teenage fishermen, fisher boys, to say, Dad, I'm out of here. I love you, Dad. And to hear the encouragement from others like Zebedee to go, go for it. Do it. You won't regret it. When someone believes in you that much, you must go, guys. May you feel that encouragement from a church like this and friends and a family that says, run after it. If a rabbi believes in you like Jesus, go be like him. And do it. And may you, Generation Church, be covered in the dust of your Rabbi Jesus. May you follow him so closely you are caked in his dust all over your clothes and your feet. And may your house and your family and your workplace and your cubicle and your office and your car and your wallets and everything else be covered in his dust too. God bless and bless God. Amen.